Hello everyone. If like me, you often look at American politics with a sense of puzzlement or befuddlement over the things that they do over there, then you're really going to enjoy today's episode. I've invited onto the show my old friend Antonio Perones, who is actually a political insider, and he's going to try to explain American politics to us from the perspective of someone who's very much part of the political establishment. Antonio was the first creative director of the Democratic Caucus of the House of Representatives, then worked directly for a US senator and then became creative director for the Democratic Caucus in the Senate. So he's been very much embedded in the heart of American politics for many years. And he's going to try and explain all the things which confuse us and puzzle us about American politics. I hope you enjoy the conversation. I know I certainly did and I learned a lot. Also, in this podcast, we have a theme song. Yes, finally. And it's by none other than our friend Subhash Naya, and it's his song Utopia. So it's going to be at the beginning of every podcast from now on. And as always, if you like our reporting, if you like what we do, we desperately need your help. We desperately need your support to survive. Please do join us as a member at newnarrative.com slash join. Or if you'd like to donate, you can donate at newnarrative.com slash donate. Thank you very much. And now, take it away, Subash. Hello. Hi, Antonio. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Hey there, PJ. It's great to join you. Thank you for having me. I think it's been like, what, uh, five years since we last saw each other in person? It's been years, which is, I know that. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's good but, to see uh, you. For, for long-time viewers who, are, uh, who have been annoyed by my obsession of Hamilton the Musical, this is the guy <laughs> who introduced me to Hamilton the Musical. I still remember in the car you saying, hey, PJ, there's this new musical. <laughs> it's not opened on Broadway yet, but I saw it off-Broadway. It's fantastic. Yep. I'm going to play the soundtrack for you. You've got to watch this. And the rest is history. <laughs> yeah, a lot of, I told a lot of people that and nobody wanted to believe me early on that a musical about history, a hip-hop musical about history was going to be good. And I'll tell you, some people believed me and they, were, they got in early like you. So you got to see it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I got to see it live. That was, man, incredible, incredible experience. So I, I got to thank you for that. Okay, so for the visually disabled, could you just describe what you're wearing and your backdrop and then uh, tell us what your preferred pronouns are? Uh, sure. Um, my preferred pronouns are he, his, him, and I am wearing a white button-down shirt and a tie, <laughs> and, I'm, uh, and it's uh, usually my uniform for most work days. And right now I'm speaking to you from my home office. So I'm in just my home office here. Behind me I have a futon and some artwork that actually is very... Uh, speaks to American history and Americana. Oh, cool, cool. Oh, awesome. I think a lot of our listeners, are, it will be very curious to know what life is like over there right now. Uh, because I think uh, a lot of the media, you know, media tends to be, uh, you know, focus on the disasters and the bad news to begin with. Uh, but the impression that we get over here through the mainstream media tends to be like, oh, America's in chaos between your normal level of chaos plus COVID-19, Black Lives Matter, the election, you know, there's, the cities are burning, the, there's blood running through the streets. But what, what is it actually like for you on a daily basis? Sure. Um, and, I, and thank you for asking. It's, 
I, I can see why if you are observing it through the news media, it can get kind of <laughs> salacious at times. I mean, what's the phrase? If it bleeds, it leads. There's a reason yeah. the media uh, covers it the way it does because it's got to be exciting. It's got to be salacious for to get viewership and for people to tune in, really. Um, I'm happy to report that there's not blood in the streets. And uh, um, I think there's been a lot of contention that's been growing on different fronts. Um, the biggest things you already talked about, I mean, the COVID-19 pandemic that's really hit America hard um, and also coupled with some of the criminal justice reforms and cries for reform that we've been, in, we've been having lately is uh, with the Black Lives Matters movement and so much more that's been going on. And just, of course, all the other things that we are always having as very contentious issues, either from the environment to climate change to other political um, aspects. I mean, so much has been going on with the Supreme Court uh, with the passing mm -hmm. of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg recently and, and uh, the nomination and, um, uh, of a replacement there. And, of course, we just had a presidential election last week. So that is just the cherry on top of the, the stress Sunday, if you will. That we've been, we it's all been a culmination around that, and a lot of people have, and and that in and of itself would be the biggest news in this country if it wasn't for everything else going on right now. Right, so maybe we can start there because I think a lot of um, people are very curious about why America seems so contentious, right? And I I I would uh, you know expect that part of that is because you have maybe the most freedom of speech and expression of any country. And so people are feel free to express themselves. But at the same time, uh, with a lot of comparable countries, Canada, uh, European countries, Germany, the UK, there seems to be a lot more room for consensus or at least some level of confluence and common ground between the two or more sides. But in America, it really feels like you've got two wildly different parties, groups, even countries, nations even, occupying a single, uh, you know, a single territory. So why, why is it in America you've got such uh, drastically, sharply opposing sides uh, with completely different worldviews and value systems in one country. What's, what's going on? No, I appreciate that question. And I think a lot of that is vested in the nature of uh, just what the national identity is of our country. I mean, you touched on one part of it, and, and so much of it, it's a double-edged sword where it's what makes America great and, and, and a fantastic and fascinating place to live, especially to work in politics like I do. But it also makes it a place where it's it's at times exhausting and and, and pretty, and it really wears on you. Um, I'll take the first part, which is what you mentioned, the idea of freedom of speech. Here, the freedom of speech it's it's the First Amendment in our Bill of Rights. It's something that we hold near and dear, and it's something that we very much more than any other I think individual right that's we're, that we're entitled to as part of our Constitution that we truly hold on the highest pedestal. It's this idea that you can say what truly is in your mind and your heart, and it's not to say you won't re be rebuked or you won't get yelled at or find a lot of resistance, but you are still able to do that. You're able to protest. You're able to, to, to speak your mind. You're able to run for office. You're able to organize with, with peers of the same uh, of like-mindedness. And I think and that's always existed. In many ways, a lot of the contention you see 
or that you've been commenting on or you just commented on is something that's always existed in American politics. There are times, uh, myself as a student of history, and my wife actually used to teach history as well, um, I mean, you, you mentioned Alexander Hamilton. There's a reason we like that musical, sight unseen, right? Like, yeah. we, we truly like to look to the past for answers to inform us of what could happen in the future. This is not the most contentious that this, that, that's been in this country. There are times where if you look at even presidential campaigns in American history, um, much more severe jousting that went on there and accusation and name-calling and, and, and dragging through the mud. And, and it's incredible. I think the major factor we're seeing now, more than ever, is that every person with a cell phone is in many ways a journalist. They, they're, they're, they can capture footage and it can go online. It can go viral. Because of the advent of social media, um, you're seeing major development and advancement in the way that folks can share a message, the, the nature in which they can share the message, and also the number of people that they can then connect with who might be like-minded. I mean, you and I right now are literally on opposite sides of the world, mm. and we're speaking in real time. And, and, and I think that itself is proof of a greater point, that when you take a country and you embed in its nationalistic identity, the very fact that you can say what you believe in, you can scream what you believe in, you can protest about it, you can organize to change things, um, there are that many more tools now at the disposal of somebody who want, who's motivated to do those things. And, other, and folks who right. I think traditionally may have been just out in the ether and may not have known how to connect with somebody or how to find somebody that might, they might resonate with, um, mm -hmm. they now can connect. They, they have those platforms. And I'm talking about everything. You, know, you, you think of the obvious Facebook. You think of Twitter. You think of all the social media platforms that are now embedded in our daily lives. They're more than just social media. They are just media. They're sources for news or sources for connectivity. It is how people are become and stay informed however striped that informing happens. And, and I think that's right. why we're paying more and more attention to those things. But I also do think in many ways it fuels the fire. And it fuels in many right. ways that divisiveness. Um, and so you're saying that um, basically in uh, America, it's part you have a culture of of uh, freedom of expression, speaking up. You have constitutionally protected rights, but it just seems worse now because everyone has access to um, means of communication uh, to a degree that was uh, previously unknown. And then, um, but the actual level, overall level of contention, there have been far more contentious times in American history. I think that's right. I really do. And especially when it comes to our political figures, because I think political figures, especially in the past, could operate with a certain measure of impunity because they didn't have mm. to worry about their image. They didn't have to, they didn't have such a, um, a depth of accountability as they do now. I mean, okay. look at, we have, a, we have a president right now who, um, although recently now, re now an outgoing president, but he's someone who was very active on Twitter. So that's an individual who every day was going online and building a record and memorializing his thoughts. And what he, I think, had to come to understand was, as he put out that record and developed that record, mm -hmm. he was then held accountable for that record. And it may seem right. trivial for anybody who uses Twitter, I think, to check on just some things, some hobbies of theirs. But as a president, as an elected official, even the smallest tweet was an official statement. 
and he mm-hmm. would be held accountable for that. So in many ways, I think what technology has done is has has really lengthened our ability to 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 be memor- to our memory. Has really lengthened our memory when it comes down to it. Yeah. And I think that's a, in stark contrast to even fifty years ago, a hundred years ago, two hundred years ago. You had individuals who could do a lot, and maybe it ended up in a pamphlet or in a newspaper or on the news. Now, the news cycle lasts 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and a tweet can become news. That is something that you could not have convinced somebody of 15 years ago, that you would have a microcomputer in your pocket and you could create news, and the president could create news at 11 p.m. on a Wednesday. You know, that that wouldn't happen. (laughs) Right, Yeah. yeah. Okay, but to be fair, right, that is true for every country. So is is the difference for America, you're the only country um, or, or one of very few countries, uh, you know, because I, I think there are other, a few other leaders who are following in that, in, uh, in Trump's lead of reaching out very directly to the people and tweeting out his thoughts directly. Um, but there's... Is there anything specific to America you feel that actually creates more contention? Is it merely a function of, you mentioned two things, uh, sort of national identity, your values, and the second technology, right, which is, as I said, available to everyone. So is it purely a function of who you are as a nation that leads your politics to be so contentious, especially when you compare it to maybe the, the countries, as I mentioned, Canada, UK, Germany, you know, countries which are culturally the most similar to you, geographically, economically, you're way more contentious than Canada, you know. And is that is that structurally, like Canada uses a Westminster system and you have your own, you know. Uh, but then the French also have a system that's similar to yours in many ways. So what is it that makes it just so contentious? Sure. I think it's a couple of things. I think one, it, it, it is... There are different elements at play. One, it is this national identity. What I mean that we, it's almost as if we take pride in being contentious. You know, we truly, um, and, and it does root back to the idea of freedom of speech, that if you're arguing, if you're having an uncomfortable conversation, at least it's honest. And we truly, truly treasure that. Um, beyond that, I think it is in part some way of how our particular brand of government is structured. Structurally, it's made to be contentious, just like our jurisprudence is made to be an adversarial system. Our politics is made to be an adversarial system. It is this underpinning that the best answer comes from whoever's left standing at the end of a good argument. Um, And lastly, I think one thing that um, that we haven't touched upon yet that I know that I've personally taken note of, and I think you have to appreciate the fact that I'm somebody who worked at a very high level of politics in our government. I worked doing communications. I did communications training and messaging and branding in the House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate. And I was the first creative director in both chambers. I ran television studios, radio studios. I worked with countless members of Congress. And I can tell you that what I always found fascinating about America uniquely is that we have very much professionalized political discourse. There is a whole industry that exists in this country of consultants, of individuals who work the field. I mean, look, I, I myself am a, am a political actor. Even though I've never been on a ballot, I haven't run for office, I am someone who works in the system. And it is a, and it is a significant system. 
And that is part of what drives the train. You have the resources and the talent, and I am part of those resources and talent in the world who, who are activated to drive the political train in a certain way. And, I, and right now, the job I have now, I'm very fortunate. I, I, I do work now, and I'm trying to help reform a criminal justice system. Now, what I do now, when I say political, I think oftentimes people think of something like I'm trying to win a campaign or an election. I don't think that is truly the definition of political. I think when I say political, I mean you're trying to get something accomplished with a values-based mm -hmm. agenda through the government. That can happen through an election. Easiest way to do that mm -hmm. is if, you know, PJ, if I wanted to change your immediate situation, I could get you elected to government, <laughs> right? But once you're elected, there's a whole lot of change that has to happen. And that is where, especially where we live, I tell you, there's a lot of smart, sophisticated, professionalized political people who do this work um, to the point where I just don't – I've not gotten the impression in other countries you have this professional class of people who do the mm -hmm. work to support the electeds or to support the candidates. I think what would be very fascinating for you is if you ever were able to travel here and get just a, a seat to watch candidly – the inner workings of a campaign here. You know, I've seen my fair share of documentaries and coverage of campaigns overseas. And as somebody who I myself have been involved in a, roughly 200 campaigns in my hopefully young life. <laughs> um, and I can tell you, wow. they are very intense here. It, it is the reason I have gray hairs in my beard is because <laughs> of these campaigns. And they are well-oiled machines and they are tough and they're professional. And it's also why I know of a lot of political consultants who go out to Europe, who go to, who I know, I know people who have worked in France, in the UK, in Italy. I know folks who've done work in Africa. I know folks who've done work in the Middle East who go and do political work because even if they are not the top of their class here, as far as political um, professional goes, they are eons beyond what they expect there and they can make real change occur. And I, I think you can't discount that. It's not to toot my own horn or other people's horn. It's just that once you monetize anything, people are incentivized yeah. to get very good and very aggressive at it. And I think the political discourse has been professionalized in this country to a large degree. But is that healthy, though? Because I think the impression that we have uh, from abroad is two things. One is the intensity of your political conflict very often seems to spill over into violence, not at the political the level of the politicians, but because these things seem to have such high stakes, high, high intensity, everything is so uh, you know um, emotionally intense, you see that violence spilling out in the streets. And the second is an idea that, uh, okay, you, you have the most sophisticated, developed, monetized, uh, funded rather, political class, political consultants, right? And that makes total sense to me. Uh, but then you get an industry which thrives off creating this conflict, which wants to have more conflict to, so that um, they have the jobs, they have people hiring them, right? So it sort of feeds on itself and ends up both with more conflict and more violence. Yeah, I mean, you, I mean, look, you've also just described the news media in many ways, right? Like, right. It, it's the same thing. And, and, both, and both those entities feed off each other. Um, at the end of the day, you're not wrong in the sense that 
it, it, it is a volatile mixture. But I can tell you this, I've worked a lot inside politics at different levels. And so that's why uniquely my perspective, I can tell you that I've worked at the local level, I've worked at the state level, and I've worked at the federal level. And they're all distinctly different forms of governance there. Um, in Congress, I can think of quite a few individuals on the other side of the political aisle who I didn't agree with if you simply go down a list of ideologies and party affiliation, but there was a lot of work that was collaborated on. Sure, there are some of these lightning rod issues that become very contentious, but I, I, I really, my, my sincere wish is that the news would cover a lot of the things that are agreed upon that aren't contentious at all. And we're talking whole portfolios of legislation or ideas that just don't go down that path. But there are the things that, that are very contentious, and there's some that are local issues. Um, there are some that are at state-level issues, and there are some at federal issues, and they all intercede differently. I think one thing that I've also come to appreciate um, about that interplay is it's, it's hard to not lose sight of what people, what matters most to people. Um, I think if you're an elected official in any one of those levels, you're quick to, to um, lose sight of what really matters to your constituents. So anytime you're in front of a camera, you think that your issue is the most important issue in the world. Maybe the day comes where that is true, but I know that something I always try to reflect on and remind myself is what do people truly expect of their government? And what do they expect of services that need to be rendered? And what are these, you know, this massive lane that we have to hit of things that we have to get accomplished? And then I think there are always those individuals, whether it be the president or an elected official at a lower rank, who try and sensationalize um, certain issues because, like you said, they then know they can build upon it. Um, and, and I think that's just a fundamental that, uh, of, of being, of having an effective election, you know, I think is that, or at least being an effective candidate for any election is that if you've got to, if you want to run for something, you have to run for something or against something. And I think you need to have usually an opponent, whether it's the manifest, a person who is a manifestation of something you don't believe in or the ideas that you run against. And, and I think that's part of it is that, I mean, look, we just had an incredibly contentious election last week, um, and you have just referenced all these reasons why this is such an intense time for America, where an incredible amount of work is being poured into this election, into these issues, into the advocacy of these issues, into people protesting and marching for these issues, and all th sorts of things, and at last check, what, hundred, a, a little under 150 million people voted. So about half this country. Half this country didn't even vote. You know, so you have half that are divided, yes, hyper-engaged, hyper-concerned. 50% of this country did not vote. So it, it, it's amazing, it's fascinating to me to think that I remind myself that the individuals who care about this thing, these things, care a lot. But there's also a mm. lot of individuals, quite frankly, half the country, who just can't, who are just living their lives and along for the ride. And and I think that's what's very 
interesting about the situation we're in is that you have the individuals who take snapshots, who are marching in the streets, but those are occasionally isolated incidents. Um, you know, you might have a protest, a street shutdown, uh, an event that happens that becomes very widespread, and you have maybe two dozen people there with cell phones who take different angles of an event, and suddenly it looks like a massive media event, um, but it's an isolated incident. And then the next day, they move on. Um, it's what I find fascinating. I, I, I think about, I never forget the fact that we are a country of 300 million people. And when you take that into account, so many of the issues seem so small and isolated. But at the same time, I appreciate that people are passionate about it and passionate about it across the board. I know that was a very long-winded okay. and down a rabbit hole answer. And there's a lot to <laughs> unpack there. But yeah, you know, it, yeah. it, it, it's, it's, truly, it's truly how this country is. But I can tell you this. If nothing else, where I, I have no problem going outside right now and not fearing for my life, not fearing I'm going to get shot. I have no problem. I've been going to work. I drive to work. I don't fear that there's going to be blood in the streets or a massive protest that I worry about. Uh, like I said, we're, we're, it's almost like we're very good at being contentious and argumentative. That it is almost, you know, that, that we it doesn't really keep us up at nights. Like, not everybody here has a gun and has it on their person at all times, right? Like, that's just, although that may be the perception, that's not the reality of it. Uh, well, thanks. There's so many things I wanted to pick up from there. Um, let's start with this whole thing about uh, effectiveness, efficiency, Right. And because you have uh, you mentioned what, seven and a half years in in the House and Senate, right, in Congress, Democratic caucus for, uh, you know, you were created director for both the um, House caucus and then the Senate caucus. Um, so you've been in the room where it happens. And there's this impression that America somehow is not able to get stuff done because of the nature of its politics. And I think something which a lot of Americans share as well, right? This idea that um, the contentious and um, very, the, the way the system is set up means that a minority of people can actually stymie a lot of change. Where you have, for example, a clear majority of Americans want and love the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare. They want uh, gun control, right? They want a more effective response to uh, uh, the pandemic, COVID-19 pandemic. And yet, that can't be done uh, because either uh, a minority can just block everything in the Senate uh, or uh, even worse, uh, uh, a majority of senators who represent a minority of states and a minority of people ram through uh, uh, policies based on an ideology which only represents a minority, right? And even where you have clear common sense things that need to be done, it can't be done. So that's the impression. How true is that? Or is that, you know, to pick up on your other theme that uh, is that only true of a few headline issues, but for the most part, bipartisanship is able to actually solve America's problems? Um, I, I think bipartisanship is, does solve a lot of the problems. But there are some issues that have become increasingly contentious just in my time when I was working in Congress. I remember from the very first year I started to the time when I left, like you said, years after, it had become increasingly more contentious. And 
I think maybe you can chalk that up to just the competitive nature of Americans uh, wanting to win. Um, but at the same time, I think what it really comes down to is, and, and I know you're interested in talking about this too, it is how do we interact with our own framework of government, meaning the Constitution, what the, there's such an obsession here with what the founders intended, meaning the founding fathers, <laughs> Alexander Hamilton and all his cohorts. Um, and, and, it, and I mean that sincerely, it's an obsession. It's an obsession as if what they wrote was chiseled in a tablet and can never be touched. Um, and that goes for the Electoral College. That goes for the filibuster. That goes for a lot of the rules that we adhere to. That goes for our bicameral system of government. Um, George Washington, when they set up the Senate and the House, and I'm probably going to, to um, mess up or screw up this uh, this story a bit, but I, there's a story that George, somebody asked George Washington what the difference was in the two chambers, and that he held up a hot cup of tea with a saucer, and and he said, you know, like, the House of Representatives is your hot cup of tea, and then he poured it slowly into the saucer, and he said, and the Senate is a saucer to cool the tea. And, 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 that, that, and you can appreciate that if you're somebody like me who worked in the House and the Senate, because I can tell you those two chambers alone are vastly different. Um, the House of Representatives, it is a proportionate representation depending on populations um, of different states. So you can have states that have one member of the House of Representatives. You can have states that have 50 members of the House of Representatives. It is entirely driven by population. And, and those terms only last two years. And I can tell you now, because of the way politics work here and elections work here, you are elected to office in the House of Representatives and you are immediately, day one, week one, thinking about your re-election. Because you blink and two years go by in an instant. And you are immediately hustling to raise money to, to organize your campaign. And basically it's a campaign that never ends. And because of that, you have a healthy amount of turnover. You have a healthy amount of individuals who either burn out or decide to run for Senate or something different or just call it quits, <laughs> or, or, or challenged by a new challenger every two years and lose by happenstance. It's why you see the House, even though it has so many members and majorities can grow to a large degree, it shifts quite a bit. Um, I also love the, I love the House because I feel it is the one that is most seated in the people. Like it is a place where you can see somebody just plucked from a community and suddenly become a member of the House. And that is why you see such impassioned debates um in hearings you see people just going at each other because i think these are individuals who are not career politicians necessarily you will always find those career politicians but these are individuals who truly have just been elected to a two-year term and um and and suddenly are thrust onto the national stage and right. and it's it's an exciting place to be that said i've also described the house uh, if anybody wants to go work in the house you need to have the stamina to work there. It is, everything is on fire. You're like a fireman running around and there's always <laughs> a fire. There is never a day that you had just, there was never a day where I would walk in with a newspaper under my arm and be like, ah, when's my first meeting? You know, like never. Right. The Senate, on the other hand, you have a situation where every state gets two senators. Those senators are not elected every two years. They have six-year terms. 
And even in your state, those senatorial races are offset, so your two senators are not typically up at the same time. And that factor alone, I can tell you, PJ, changes the DNA of the chamber. When you walk, Mm -hmm. like you can literally walk from the House side to the Senate side in the Capitol, and there is a different tone and temperament entirely. There is actually a lot more room for bipartisanship in the Senate because you have less pressure to get contentious because you're running for re-election. If you get elected to the Senate, you probably have four years before you really have to worry about your re-election. That is four years of statesmanship, of, um, of bridge building, of getting something, some, some hallmark piece of legislation accomplished. And, and in a senator, if you get reelected once, suddenly that's 12 years of your life you can dedicate to an institution. And that's why I always used to say it, it felt like, honestly, like a golf course <laughs> in the Senate. I felt like when you walked over there, it was more relaxing, slower paced. Um, uh, if I wanted to wish on my best friend where they wanted to go work, I would say go work in the Senate. Uh, however, me being the way I am, I don't know what's wrong with me. I can tell you I have a love for the house like no other. Like I love the idea of that energy and people wanting to get something done. But to your point, it's a lot more contentious in the house. And, and I think mm-hmm. a lot of that depends on who has the majority. It's like you were speaking to. The majority rules the day. It, ru- it runs the docket. It selects the committee chairs of both chambers. It selects what gets heard as a piece of legislation on the floor of that chamber. It it, it dictates the majority. It it selects what rooms people get to be in. And if you don't think Mm. that's a factor, I've seen it firsthand, that uh, somebody will take over the majority and be like, yeah, yeah, I like your office. Get out. Like, that happens. (laughs) And, And the problem is, I think, when you have politicians who stick around for a long time, who identify themselves as like the the human embodiment of a party and its values when you don't have that kind of changing of the guard often enough you start to really get sedentary in your ways and set and those contentious battles become commonplace and and i think that's what that's maybe what we we have right now as a potential problem you know that we have a situation where the average age of a member of leadership regardless of the party regardless of the chamber, is so high and so much higher than the average age of an American, the average age of their own caucus. And, they, and it's, this, isn't, this is not a statement about age as much as it's a statement to the fact that they've been doing this for a long time, that if, if they haven't figured out how to do it effectively and instead they've gotten good at digging in their heels, well then that's what they're going to do. And I think when you look at somebody like Mitch McConnell, that's an individual who's gotten very good at digging in his heels. And ideologically, there is a difference. Like, aside from all the, the value statements of where you stand on positions between Republicans and Democrats that I have noticed, that over the years, Democrats have been much more conscious of, you know, pushing the rules to the extent because they want to adhere to almost good sportsmanship. And Republicans, mm-hmm. I think, have have uh, rightfully understood a significant message, which is when you are in power, you use that power. <laughs> you, you do not need to play nice. If you want to block the nomination of a Supreme Court nominee that you do not want, do it. Because the worst case scenario is the people will vote you out of that power. If, if you want to bo- vote, block the nomination of 
hundreds of judges at the at, a, at the federal level do it. The worst case scenario is that power will be taken away from you. If you want to block a piece of legislation, if you want to do any one of a number of things, you know they, they can operate not with full impunity, but by and large with impunity. The Senate is a particularly interesting f chamber because of those six-year offsets that mm. the, the, the opportunity to shift majorities doesn't really happen every two years. You have to truly pick your locations and pick what, 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 what races you can win as a caucus to try and then recoup uh, seats and take over um, a majority. But truly, it's as you said, so much of the battles are won and lost by the sheer, by the sheer fact of who is in the control of the majority. Right. There's this there's this impression, uh, you know, to pick up on the last thing you said, that the the Republicans are ruthless, uh, but kind of amoral, whereas the Democrats are kind of well-meaning but ineffectual. How how true is is that? Well, I wouldn't say ineffectual because you mentioned earlier the Affordable Care Act, right? Obamacare, and I was there for that, and I was in the room mm -hmm. where it happened. We I was there in all those closed door meetings with members. Where we talked about, um, where we talked about um, what we were going to be passing, how we had to pass it, and that is a piece of legislation we, that we were going to get accomplished because we knew it meant so much to so many people. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you this: I was awestruck by some of the individuals who voted for that piece of legislation because they knew, they knew that the rhetoric was so charged and people were so motivated and organized. To and it's ridiculous when you say it out loud. We're organized against the idea of providing people health care, right? You can almost like when you say that you're like, of all the things to really bother you, that keep you up at night, it really is giving people health care. That's that's the hill you're yeah. gonna die on. Um, so, but people were very organized, and by the end, I remember the polling data showing us that there were a lot of people in vulnerable districts that they knew. I'm going to vote for this piece of legislation and I won't be back next year. I'm going to lose my election. And they still did it. And they were, I wouldn't say fine with it, but they had come to terms with it. They knew that they were being part of something greater than themselves. Um, but, you know, but I wouldn't categorize that as ruthless, but they were being affected. It was a compassionate, almost like a compassionate ruthlessness, right? Where they themselves were throwing themselves mm -hmm. onto a sword. Um, but by and large, I have found that, and, and you know, and I hate to use this categorization because I can think of so many Republicans that I know, and I'm not even just talking about friends of mine who are Republicans. I'm talking about actual members of Congress I know who are Republicans, who I dearly love and respect, um, and who are good people. But their leadership at times have have I think pushed us to a to a maximalist degree, right? They they um, yeah. they have pushed us. And what's interesting is I oftentimes think of the political, the political discourse and the incentive to push to that extreme degree. I think of it as if you have a lazy dog and you have that dog on a leash and that dog, you know, you got to drag it sometimes one way or another. Um, and if that dog pulls you, you may not go exactly where if it's the inverse and the party is that the motivated dog and wants to pull me, the American people, somewhere. I may not go fully in the direction that dog wants to take me, but it's going to pull me a little in that direction. So there are often times where I feel like the Democrats and the Republicans aren't an elephant and donkey. They're two very excited dogs 
that are pulling us in two different directions. And the more enthusiastic one, the one who can pull us more aggressively in that direction, they're not going to get us to that extreme, but they're going to move us off center and start moving us to that end. Even if it's a margin, like a, you know, a, a small degree of movement, to them it still seems like a success. And that movement may materialize in any one of a number of ways. Um, but again, the silver lining I have is I have to go to sleep at night believing that a lot of the values I fight for, like you were referencing, are things that the majority of America cares about. Whether it's gun control, whether it's universal, you know, a health a care system that actually provides health care to people, whether it's um, curbing our usage of the environment, all that. Um, I like to think that most of America actually feels that way and cares that way. It's reassuring when we see an election like last week that shows that a majority of Americans, straight up and down, electoral college be damned, um, support Joe Biden's message and a democratic message. Um, but however, when you get down into the logistics, into the labyrinth of how a lot of these seats are elected and how that maneuvering occurs to posture a party that, quite frankly, like you said, in the Senate, you have a party in control that less Americans voted for than voted for the minority. You know, you got to give credit to Republicans for smartly allocating and activating the resources. But at the end of the day, I like to think that we as a nation are much more liberal and much more progressive minded than we were 20 years ago, 50 years ago, and so forth. And I just have to- what's interesting to me, um, if I can interrupt, is, is you know, you, you seem to give the, the Republicans so much props for doing what they do. But from the outside, it seems like they're cheating, you know, that there's a certain set of norms and values around democracy, right, that you're supposed to respect certain uh, values about give and take uh, tolerance. And especially when you're creating legislation, um, and negotiating and what it looks like from the outside is okay the democrats play by the rules the republicans don't and what is uh, amazing to me listening to you is that you seem to respect that and say hey you gotta you know give the the republicans uh, credit for knowing the rules uh, and and restraining them to their to the maximum and uh, doing everything, and what's the worst that can happen? You lose power, you lose power, right? And that attitude alone seems so different from, from um, you know, at least from, from here, for example, or elsewhere, where there's so much more respect for norms. So is, is, this, is this then an American thing where you're like, well, you know, it's what you do with the power, it's what you can achieve, that's what we respect, rather than an unwritten set of norms that, uh, you know, that you want to uphold. I think that is where America is right now. I think it's a respect for what can you accomplish with the power. Um, me personally, um, I'll put it this way. Uh, an a metaphor I'd use for this is, or an analogy I'd use for this is like, you know, when, when, you, when I hear a report of like this oil, this gasoline company, this oil company, Exxon has made a profit of $100 billion. Can you believe that? My response personally is always like, well, yeah. And that's what they're supposed to do. Like, I'm never going to be offended that a company made money. That's what they set out to do and that's what they accomplished. 
the Republican Party has made has not pulled any punches here. I I respect anybody who can say, hey, hey, I'm going to punch you in the face. I'm not going to be shocked when they punch me in the face because I'm like, well, if nothing else, they had the gall to tell me what they were going to accomplish and then went out and accomplished it. And I guess the point when I talk like this, the point I'm trying to make, if I were able to like talk to my fellow Democrats, the point I try to make to them is you need to understand this if your goal is to play that game. I'm not even advocating, in a weird way, I'm not advocating playing that game because I think to your point, PJ, it does degrade your very soul to almost, you know, make it transactional yeah. like that. And I mean it wholeheartedly. Yes. And, and this is, I think, cuts to the heart of, like, now it gets almost personal for me, of what I've been able to observe through the positions that I served, which is, I'll put it this way. The, the, the story I just told you about the Affordable Care Act, those votes, mm-hmm. members who, I'm telling you, I remember the day after we took the vote, we were in a closed-door meeting, and there was a member of Congress who was crying reading an email. And he's, he's reading an email from one of his staffers, female staffers, in, who had just emailed him that day, thanking him personally for voting for this legislation. Because she said, you know, I have this job, I'm very fortunate to work for you, but she's like, but just so you know, I've never talked to you about this. I have a pre-existing condition. I was not always well. And I'm somebody who I always knew I wouldn't be able to get the same coverage I otherwise could have because of my pre-existing condition. And that today, I have never been more proud to work for somebody than you because you took a vote that's going to help me in my life and help other people like me. And he was crying at this microphone. And he was one of the people who knew I ain't coming back next year. But he was so damn proud of it. And it's moments like that where I remember sitting in these meetings thinking... I do not know what is going on in the Republican meeting right now. I don't get to sit in that meeting. I don't know what they're talking about. I don't know what they're strategizing about. I've got to believe they're more effective at strategizing and objectively looking at it and being like, okay, how do we make sure this doesn't happen again? And finding some legal loophole or some political maneuvering to, to as you said, like be ruthless in, in their approach. But I wouldn't rather. I would not rather be in that room because, for what I could tell, I, I knew that I was at least in a room of people who cared. And what I would love to do isn't, you know, whether we're talking about everybody having a cell phone and viral videos and everything going online. I wouldn't want to tamper that down. I am somebody who almost wants almost wants to turn up the heat so we can sweat through it and get to a place where people are exposed to so much of this political rhetoric. And I think this cuts to the heart of what I love about what we experience here. They get exposed to so many difficult conversations. They get exposed to so many silver-tongued politicians who are well-rehearsed and well-practiced. They get exposed to so many political strategies. They get exposed to so many advertisements and, and misleading information online that eventually they become informed and desensitized to it. That's where that's the fever I think America is suffering through, and we have to sweat through that fever. So you think there's a solution to that, that it's not inherent in your system, though? Because you call it a fever, it suggests a temporary condition. 
You think it, things will change? I like to think it's a temporary condition. Um, what I've what I've found to be disconcerting is where we started this whole conversation out, PJ, is that the fever we're sweating through now, I think, has always bubbled up in the past because there's always been that measure of contention. The big difference and the reason that I am so committed to media and communications and political discourse and 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 what we're able to do online um, is because I truly believe this is a different age. We are now in the information age. Unlike any other time in global history, never mind American history, in world history, never mind American history, um, the average person has a lot more access to a lot more catalog instances of this happening. I would like to think that the tricks of the trade that may be used to manipulate a voter or someone are that much less effective today than they were yesterday, than they were last year, than they were 10 years ago. Because mm-hmm. that many more, because right now an individual can go online and experience so much more and for themselves examine those patterns and come to a determination that makes them a more informed voter and political actor. It is That is a silver lining that I honestly mm-hmm. rest my entire a willingness to do continue to do this work on is that the average American has a better chance today if for no other reason they have a, a, a bigger catalog of information to review year in, year out, that they can go back and be a reflective practitioner in politics. That they can say, huh, this person is saying the same tired rhetoric that this other person said last year. Or they're using the same kind of jargon to trigger me to have an emotional response that somebody used on these other people 10 years ago or five years ago or a hundred years ago. And, and I right. think that whittles it to it. Like I, the biggest lesson I've learned PJ in the 200 or some odd elections I've done. And in all the meetings I've been in, I'm somebody who has met with presidents. I've met with congressmen and women and senators. I've met with, business owners and average people on the street, you know? And I can tell you, Mm. there is so little that separates us. We are all such simple, hyper-emotional creatures. And if you look at any person you meet, PJ, we're all the same thing. We're all flesh and blood, and we all have the things that make us feel great, and that we do because they give us a positive emotional response. We all have the things that trigger us. We all have our pain points. We all have our different thresholds. And, and, and that's it. I want, if nothing more, than to think that because of the body of work that the internet and that the collected whole of human information is constantly gathering and vomiting back onto us, that we all become better reflective practitioners and become self-aware. That, you know what I'm going to do tomorrow? I'm not going to let that thing affect me like it did yesterday. I'm not going to go and yell at the right. top of my lungs. I, I, want to, I want people to wake up tomorrow and look at what they posted on social media yesterday or notice that they got into an argument with somebody and after a day or after a week or after a month be like, God, that, was, that wasn't important. Why did I get into that argument? And, and that's what I hope. I hope that people can go along that journey. You can't go along that journey if you don't get heated and you don't make mistakes. Does that make sense, PJ? 
Yeah, I think it, throughout human history, we, we have seen that society does become more reflective, more self-aware, you know, in the long term, right? In the short term, of course, there's always disasters, but over 100-year periods. Um, and to your other point about... I think social media is an accelerant for that, though. I truly believe yeah. that. Something that would have Things taken Things are becoming faster, yes. Yeah, it's an accelerant. And that's what I'm um, hopeful of. And people do adapt. Like the way, if you look at commercial advertising, uh, you know, 50, 60 years ago, uh, it's so simple, so blatant, right? This product X is better than product Y. Whereas people will just ignore that today. And you have to be so much more sophisticated if you're advertising because people adapt to, you know, there was a time where if you made a, a, a statement commercially, people would just accept it as true. And now we're so skeptical. So people do adapt. But to, to your point about the American people, I actually want to ask why the American people seem so suspicious of government then, right? There's this sense, uh, again, from the outside, that Americans are very, very resistant to government, even when the point of government is to do things collectively that you can't do individually. But what we hear is, you know, Americans who are uh, even the most, your, um, you know, what you consider radical left in America is like centrist in Europe, you know, because the extent to which the left is willing to go to intervene in the lives of Americans is far less than in Europe, let alone in Asia, where, you know, I come from a place where the government can tell me you know, where to, where to go to school and what race I am and influence who I marry and how many children I have, all because it's for the good of the society as a whole, which, you know, of course, it's way too far, right? But uh, you seem, America seems to be on the other end of the spectrum where you, there's a deep suspicion of government. Why, why is that? Um, I think that has to do with a couple of things. I think, one, um, it is because of our very mutated electoral system and our like you know what I've been what I mentioned earlier like this professionalized system of running for office right and and the systems and devices that support that because to run for office to get elected to office PJ you have to be a change agent and so you are bombarded at every level your local level, your state level, your federal level, your presidential level, you are bombarded with the constant message that I am so-and-so and I'm running for this office because you shouldn't trust what's happening and I can do it better. And so you, no matter who you are, you will always, and what party affiliation you affiliate with, you will always find a contender going up against an incumbent candidate and them bombarding you with a message of dissent of the way the system is. So right. at, some, at any given moment, you will have somebody who you believe with and associate with fighting against the system that's supposed to be serving you. Yeah, but again, isn't that so corrosive in the long term? Because in the short term, okay, you get elected. But uh, surveys have shown that Congress as a whole is one of the least trusted institutions in America, right? You've got like a 9% approval rating. So over the years, because you have so many successive generations of candidates saying, don't trust those people in DC. Now, no matter who gets elected, no one's going to trust. So isn't, isn't this part of the point I'm making earlier that 
the way politics is done in America seems to be short term, so powerful, but long term corrode the entire institution. You 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 nailed it with what you just said about short term. Um, I think back to I organized an event once. I'm a big science nut. <laughs> I love science, particularly space science. And one day, while I was in the house, I um, I organized an event for a bipartisan organization. They were called the National Labs Caucus. Um, it was a caucus that was bipartisan, bicameral, and it, it was to talk to to push for scientific research in national labs in the U.S. And by by the way. Science and space science in particular is something that I've seen so much bipartisan work on, and it's something that is not contentious. And it's something I'm very proud of the work I've done in that space because it is so gratifying, and it, it really, you know, I guess pun intended, lifts us above all the other issues. But an event I organized for them, which I invited um, Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson to come mm -hmm. and speak to the event, and I got to meet him. He was lovely. We had lunch together. And I'll send you the link at some point. You can they, they recorded the event. And he was supposed to speak for an hour. He spoke for almost two. He did questions. And at one point, he was talking about how almost it was kind of bold of him. It was a public event, but he remember a Congress there, members of Congress there, almost how to fix exactly what you're talking about. So it was this moment where like an astrophysicist was applying his brain to how can you try and do away with this contentious nature? And this is like eight years ago, seven years ago. Um, and he said that he thinks that members of Congress should be forced to vote on legislation that isn't enacted until they leave, meaning they should be forced mm -hmm. to enact legislation by the, by its definition, the result of it isn't within your term. So therefore you cannot take credit for accomplishing this thing. This thing is going to, by definition, take place after you're gone. And if you force the member of Congress to think beyond the scope of their term, you would then in essence be doing the same thing you're speaking to, right? The idea of forcing them not to think short term, but to think long term. And it's interesting because I want to also get back to your previous question too about why are we so contentious about you know, Congress as a people? I think another factor is that speaking to like the nationalistic brand, or at least where it's grown for America, what we for Americans, what we identify with, especially over the course of the 20th century, we have become very much so increasingly more individualized. And I think you are you never if in America, if you're an American right now living here, you are you've never lived in a time where you can depend on so few people outside of yourself. Um, as I sit here right now, EJ, if I wanted to keep talking to you, I can order my groceries and have them delivered to my front door. I can order any product really. I can order a car and have it delivered <laughs> to my front door and I can sell my car and they will unload the new car, put my old car on their trailer and take it away. There is nothing I can't do. And, and look, I'm fortunate that I have a family. I have a wife. You know, I at least get to interact with her. I could do a job where I work remotely, live by myself, and truly not have a physical interaction with any person. When I get on the metro, when I get on the subway, when I get on in a taxi cab or an Uber, if I have my headphones in, my whole world is in the palm of my hands, 
and I may not even have a conversation with a person a foot away from me. And I think mm -hmm. that exists now more than ever. And so because of that, my the political party, what I want out of this world is truly embodied in my own head and within my own flesh that I truly relate to that. And I think it's why it dovetails to what I said earlier. When you have people now who can discover other like-minded people online, that becomes the real world. That becomes the political discourse. That becomes what I care about. The Facebook groups I join and I'm part of. The Twitter accounts that I follow and I retweet. Those are my identity. And where before, I don't know, maybe I had a small group of people in a neighborhood I would hang out with. Or maybe there was like a fraternal organization I, I joined or was part of. Or maybe there was a group at work that I familiarized myself with and would meet with or a, a, another kind of social community group. All that is now online. And I can tonight, honestly, I can pour myself a drink and stay up late and watch conspiracy theories on YouTube. I can find a Facebook group I never heard of and read all these comments and start to dissect who do I appreciate and don't. I confront yeah, somebody on the yeah. other side of the world who I have no business talking to. And if they are the same flavor of crazy as I am, then we are now a team of two crazy people who never should have met. And now we are connected at the hip. So I think, oh, but I yeah, think that speaks yeah. to that in America, we are, we are so individualized now to an extreme that we have less of an obligation to inherently see and appreciate the value of coming together as a nation. Or at least coming together, the people immediately around you, you're coming together with people elsewhere who kind of share your yeah yeah and you and when you and when you go out there and you curate your own you know your own circle to be people who you strictly who strictly uh, agree with you or vice versa then you have less tolerance for people who don't agree with you right actually explains a lot you know that actually is really really helpful i i hadn't thought of it that way okay we're almost out of time so i just want to one last question Right. And you've been very generous with your time, so I don't want to take up too much of your time. But the last question is really about uh, the presidency. And um, you, you've worked chiefly with Congress. And again, the impression is that of an increasingly imperial presidency. Right. Uh, you know, as students of history, we know the presidency was not meant to be that powerful to begin with, but has increasingly become so to the point where it feels like the president has a vast amount of power and Congress doesn't have a lot of ability to act as a check and balance in many ways. Um, so how the, the, this, this, this presidency, which has collected so much power, isn't that antithetical to democracy in many ways, first of all? And second, even if domestically you tell me, okay, that there's checks and balances that, that we don't see. The problem is for those of us outside of America, those checks and balances don't exist, right? Foreign policy, is, is Congress interested in foreign policy at all, right? And uh, do they actually, or is, it, is foreign policy still seen very much through a domestic lens? So sort of two questions centered around the presidency. Yeah. Yeah, so that is, you know, as far as like the idea of like an empirical presidency, that's a debate that has long raged. I mean, it's it's nothing new. Um, the idea of like, do we have an elected king 
more or less. After we went through all this trouble of a revolution to revolt against a, a monarchy, have we in many ways instilled our own monarchy here? And you are talking about a position who is one of three branches. And you're right. It was, it was a branch. It was an individual who was going to be the chief diplomat, you know, of for the country, um, the head of state, if you will, to represent the country when you needed one person to speak. Um, somebody who was the chief, uh, the chief of our armed forces, the commander in chief of our armed forces. Um, but yet, like to your point, it's not supposed to be able to declare a war. Only Congress can declare a war. But a lot that does, if you have a commander-in-chief who can dictate where a unit of the military goes and who they're going to shoot or who they're going to bomb, in essence, then isn't it just semantics to be declaring war at that point? When you look at all the executive orders that are be, that can be issued now, um, when you look at the fact that they have the power of a veto, and if you don't have a veto-proof majority in the chamber, you have somebody who can kill a piece of legislation by not signing it. Um, never mind just vetoing it, they can just not sign it. Um, you have also a massive amount of power in the different agencies that a president oversees. You, you, can, you can just gut an agency, fill it with people who believe mm -hmm. your ideology, um, who adhere to you and are loyal to you and your thought processes. And then therefore, you know, think of everything. Like you can roll back this is what happened under Trump, quite frankly. Roll back protections under the Environmental Protection Agency, right? You can affect the way consumers and what their goods are made of. You can affect the way drugs are manufactured in the country. You can affect a whole number of things, and these are unilateral decisions that a president can make or at least set in motion um, through their cabinet and through their different agencies. Now, there is a check and a balance in that Congress... <laughs> um, oversees the budget <laughs> and so they can and i know you mentioned you 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 questioned this at one point they could shut down the country if the president mm -hmm. and the congress cannot come to an agreement they could shut down the country and then there's also the glorious third branch of government the supreme court and the supreme court is one that has in the past decade really become sensationalized and popularized too because of some of the big um contentious decisions they make what's interesting is the Supreme Court, the vast majority of decisions they make are unanimous. Um, it's only some of these hot button issues that the media gravitates towards to make it look like a contentious chamber. But I can tell you, I'm somebody who sat in on a number of um, Supreme Court uh, arguments, and it is the most dignified, respectful um, chamber. It is an incredible event. Next time you come here, PJ, I don't know if you've ever been to the Supreme Court, I'm going to have to take you there. It is it's jaw-dropping. I'm somebody who's been to the White House. I have been in chambers. You know, I'm, I'm somebody who sat in the Roosevelt Room of the White House and in both chambers of Congress. And I can tell you, when you go to the Supreme Court, it is different. It is respectful. It is your dream, PJ, believe me. There are no, <laughs> there are no, no cameras I, I, allowed. I, there are no cameras allowed in that chamber. It is all business, I, no nonsense. Yeah. And I can even tell you, the justices as a rule, out of tradition, shake hands before they come out to right. every yeah, I've heard about court. that. Yeah. And it's like and it's excellent. Um so I think ultimately there are checks and balances, but I don't disagree with you. I think what has happened is because there are moments where you have a presidency who has not had the majority either in one or both chambers that they want, have had to find creative ways to get their agenda passed. And fundamentally I don't disagree with any elected official pursuing the agenda that the people empowered them to pursue. However, 
to, I think, the underlying point you're trying to get to is I appreciate, we can appreciate that. However, it cannot be at all costs. You cannot tear up the rule book. You cannot, you know, if you take it to a new extreme, it will only be outdone by your predecessor. And so that's why it's a careful balance. And I think it's, it's, it is one of those instances when the presidential dog is tugging the leash too far, where Congress and then almost assuredly the Supreme Court will pull that leash right back. So you may see the occasional overexertion of, um, of, a liber- of, of some power, but I think oftentimes those powers are reeled back. Maybe it doesn't happen immediately. Maybe it doesn't even happen in the same presidency. Maybe it takes a, a flipping of the, of the parties in those positions, and maybe then it's reeled back. But ultimately, I don't think, you know, I think it's an immense amount of power. I think it's grown well beyond what the founders intended. Um, but I think that is also, much like so many other things we spoke about today, it is also uh, the result of having a system of government that where the rule book was written 200 and some odd years ago, but now finds itself in a very different, modern, and enormous country where, again, I can order food to get delivered to my door, but I don't think I can mount a real argument to get a constitutional amendment passed. That's that's actually, you mentioned that. Why do Americans worship the Constitution to the extent that, you know, because like some countries, like the UK, doesn't even have a constitution. But, you know, you, for, for you, it's all about the founders. And uh, there's no chance of amendments today, you know, even though you've had amendments, you had the Bill of Rights. So, uh, what, so clearly it's changed over time, right? Previous generations were willing to amend the Constitution, but the current generation uses it, it seems, more like a cudgel against their opponents. Yeah, um, I think, and I hate to keep harping back on, like, the mediaization, the media um, being able to capture and frame um, information. But um, there hasn't been an amendment to the Constitution, I mean, in decades. Um, and, And the reason I bring that up is there has not been an amendment to the Constitution since the Internet, the advent of the Internet. And I think that's important. Because if you can't visualize a process, it becomes this mysterious third rail. We all as humans inherently fear what we do not understand. And Mm -hmm. if I can't go right now and go on YouTube and watch floor debates of the last time we amended the Constitution, I can't trust that I know what that looks like. And because of the sensationalization and the politicization Mm -hmm. of rhetoric, there is so much fear ingrained at the idea of taking out the quill and editing that document. Um, And I think it's just that there's been an absence of a a majority of this country does not have an accurate living memory of the last time that occurred. And so therefore it's almost like people find it are too fearful to take up that challenge and that mantle now. Um, That said, I don't agree with it. As a student of history, you know, if you ask the, those who penned the Constitution, if you were to reanimate Thomas Jefferson and tell him right now, oh, and by the way, great work on that Constitution. We barely touched it. He would be like, what are you talking about? That is a living document. It is alive as much as you are alive. 
It should conform to you. It should reflect the nation it serves, not the other way around. I wholeheartedly believe that, and I don't disagree with you, PJ. I would love nothing more than the two things I wish would happen in this country is one, that election day every year were made a national holiday. It boggles my mind that of all the things we hold dear in this country, our right to vote is paramount. It's so tethered to our freedom of speech, and it's not a national holiday, which is insane to me. And two, that we would have a truly genuine national dialogue about how our government is truly supposed to serve us. And that starts with what we expect of it. And part of that is what do we expect of our Constitution? Okay, so thank you so much, Antonio. I'm afraid we're out of time, but this has been a fantastic conversation. I have learned so much, not just from the things you say and how you explain uh, you know, the, the structures, incentives and systems, but actually how you've said it and the kind of attitudes, the values that you have uh, displayed, because actually I've gained so much insight into how you, know, you think and, and how you approach these issues. And, and that has been really, really revealing. So thank you so much for coming on the show, coming and talking to our audience and helping us understand so much more about America. We really appreciate it. No, I'm happy to do it. I'm glad that you asked the questions you did. And I'm happy that I was able to have this candid conversation. I think we all are, uh, you know, uh, hope for a better tomorrow and we're all going to fight our best for it. So thank you very much, Antonio. Thank you, PJ. I appreciate it. Where you think that you're going to go? This is Utopia. Please stay where you are.